0: I shall never forget the weekend Laura died. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Horror Weekly Horror Noir Noirvember. Well, it's Halloween hangover time. The October season is past and we're moving into the cold phase of the spooky season. And there's a lot of horror coming up on this podcast. We're going to be doing questions about favorite winter or cold horror, holiday horror, Uh, a wrap-up of what were the best horror movies of 2023. But before we get to all that, I want to do a blended genre episode. And let's talk about this for a second, because this topic is sometimes controversial in the Horror Weekly community. What is a horror movie? And should a horror page or podcast or you know, writer, like a nonfiction writer or whatever, be dealing with quote unquote impure horror subjects, right? Like, should we be talking about the movie seven? Should we be talking about the movie Zodiac? Should we be talking about, and you know, the more the conversation goes, the more you realize that there are just huge pockets of horror fans who don't think certain things that other horror fans think are horror should count. Some people don't count monster movies or movies like Jaws or movies like Godzilla. Some people don't think movies like Silence of the Lambs or Misery are in the horror genre. And I'm not here to solve this today. I actually want to jump in and start talking about movies. I'm really excited about what's coming up here. So let's just dispense with this by going over what I'm how I'm looking at this prospect. So forget what is or isn't horror definitionally. I think that's what everyone gets tripped up on. The way I'm looking at this more is I get excited when a horror kind of branches out and starts invading other genres or subgenres in movies. I like when Other movies like Westerns, like High Plains Drifter, for example, use horror elements. It makes me feel like the horror genre is expanding and getting some of the uh, magnified respect that it deserves. So I think it's absolutely fair game for horror fans to be talking about movies that have horror elements but may not be traditionally classified as horror. I also respect and understand that if you're following a page on social media that ostensibly is about horror, if it's a page called Horror Weekly or if it's like Fangoria's page, let's take Fangoria, for example. If Fangoria spent, you know, month after month posting about 12 Monkeys and Panic Room and Schindler's List, I would expect people to get frustrated by it, and I would myself get frustrated by it. Like, the preponderance of what a horror entity should represent is horror. That makes sense. But if the horizons get expanded once in a while, if the conversation gets broadened by talking about, you know, horror westerns or military horror or true crime, whatever, whatever, I'm fine with it as long as it doesn't go overboard. The mix should be mostly horror and then anything that's adjacent, if that makes sense. So you may absolutely disagree with that. You may be the kind of person who, if uh, they're following a horror page and the horror page posts horror things for a year, two years, and all of a sudden something pops up and they're talking about Saving Private Ryan, you're like... Out, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. They don't talk about horror. I, I'm, I'm going. And again, I respect that. No one forces you to follow things or listen to things. Um, but I just don't see it that way because I get so enthused about the idea of horror reaching out. Now, I, I think it's important to understand that, as far as I'm concerned, for example. Um, Saving Private Ryan can be scary and it can be horrifying, but I don't feel like it even has horror elements. I think it's a straight up military movie propositionally, right? Like, I don't count that. I'm much more interested when horror elements are introduced to something that doesn't seem to be primarily horror, like David Fincher's Zodiac, which has truly frightening scenes, but definitely uses horror elements horror atmosphere, horror jump scares to accomplish what it's trying to accomplish. Which brings us to the genre or subgenre that I want to talk about today, which is horror noir. Um, the inspiration for this episode was I was talking in the Horror Weekly Facebook group to some people asking if they were excited about Noir Noir which um, And there were a lot of people there were. There were a lot of people where there was overlap between um, being fans of the genre of film noir and the genre of horror. And so I started to do a little like research on it. And then my mind was blown by the fact that the horror noir genre is very small. It's not like... Sci-fi horror or um, slashers or whatever, or paranormal horror, where there are hundreds, if not thousands of movies to choose from. Horror noir is a pretty small uh, bunch. I'd be surprised if you could even get a 100 names on a list of movies you could consider to be horror noir. But here's the thing. The, the top of the list is masterpieces straight across, right? So when I first started searching it, here's the names that came up. Psycho, Cat People, Angel Heart, Night of the Hunter, Hunter, Curse of the Demon, Lady Diabolique, Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive, Wolfen, Seven. Are you kidding me? This is an amazing set of films. And even though there aren't that many of them, I feel like if you took however many I just said there, if I like 10 or 12 movies and you picked like the top 12 found footage movies, I find it hard to believe that if you matched them in a bracket that you could find 12 found footage movies as great as Psycho, Night of the Hunter, Angel Heart, uh, 7, etc., could you find 12 werewolf movies that were as good as the, the amount of movies I just listed in horror noir? Probably. Seems very possible. But it would be close. <laughs> so there are horror subgenres with a lot more films in them that get a lot more attention uh, than horror noir. And horror noir never seems to get mentioned, or very rarely, I should say. Another really interesting thing is the breadth of different kind of movies that are actually in the horror noir genre, if if you're counting them, from the incredibly fun and just silly, which is, you know, not the first thing you associate with noir, but we're going to talk about it in a second, all the way to like the bleakest, most hard-hitting, most despairing kind of film. So, and and the fact that, again, a small subgenre can h- contain a span of kind of movies like this, I find really fascinating. So let's talk about, I want, <laughs> I want to start with this because this movie is just so bad, but also good, but also just hilarious, but also actually scary in parts that it really fascinates me. It's a movie called The First Power um, from 1990, directed and written by Robert Resnikoff and starring Lou Diamond Phillips, Tracy Griffith, and Jeff Cober of uh, uh, Walking Dead Season 4, I believe. Well, whatever season, he was Joe. <laughs> so the, <laughs> the First Power, uh, right out of the gate, let's just say, Um, but out of the more than half a million people who follow horror weekly in some form and some place or another in all the years that I've been doing this, which is more than five, um, I have never seen a single post uh, to the group. I've never seen a single reply comment of like recommend a movie where anyone has ever brought this movie up. This movie might as well not exist as far as I can tell within our community. I'm sure there's people who know it and remember it, but um, it's just never brought up. And I'm sure there are quite a few people who remember it because it was a financial success, if if a critical disaster. But if you haven't seen it or heard of it or remember it, um, The First Power is about a sadistic serial killer whose name is Patrick Channing. Um, he's known as the Pentagram Killer, and he's roaming around Los Angeles, killing people as a sacrifice to Satan. His M.O. is to engrave a pentagram symbol, of course, into the flesh of his victims before killing them. And then he runs into Detective Russell Logan. That's Lou Diamond Phillips, who's determined to bring the pentagram killer to justice. He also the detective is also aided by a psychic. That's uh, her name is Tess. That's Tracy Griffith, who is Melanie Griffith's sister. She was also in the sleep camp three. So the first power is a completely insane movie. It actually has a pretty strong start. There's like a stakeout. There's a kidnapping of one of the, of the, one of the law enforcement people by um, Channing, the serial killer. Um, he's going to sacrifice her uh, Lou diamond Phillips. And I, I, someone else from the force is trying to hunt them down. They're in a park. I'm assuming it's Griffith Park where everything's filmed in Los Angeles. Um, And it's pretty terrifying. It's a very similar vibe to like the scene in, I think it's Red Dragon when um, the killer is torturing um, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And, it starts with like low really reasonable talking from the killer and then he starts saying crazy things that don't make sense. He's like I I you got I'm I'm here to help you. I'm just here to help you. Like I'm going to say some prayers backwards and then we're going to walk through the door. And the poor detective is like tied on the ground just staring at him with a gag in her mouth and she's like what? <laughs> what is he talking about? He's like you know, walk through the door. The door that's you know, located here. And then he puts his finger on his forehead and puts his finger on her forehead. Like, like there's a door there, <laughs> right? So, you know, things are going from bad doors. He gets out a knife. He puts a mask on her. Then he puts a mask on himself. It's getting really weird. And you know, she's in big, big trouble. And then the police show up to intervene. And that's one of the odd things about the first power is it turns into a pretty effective chase scene, in the beginning of the movie with a pretty creepy atmosphere in the park, like modern the Wolfman with like fog and, you know, like trees and shadows. But for some reason, this movie wants to be an action movie. It feels a lot like the end of days or end of days. I can't remember if there's a the there um, in feel where it's a hybrid. It's kind of, what the fail that happened with, I know there's a lot of people who have come back around to like this movie, but Tom Cruise's The Mummy with However You Feel About It um, sort of aborted the Dark Universe and wasn't considered a critical success by any means. Um, but it was because there was this hybridization of horror and action. And The First Power has a lot of scenes of this superpowered, possessed killer who's getting put to death, like shocker style. Um, and then you're going around and possessing people um, pretty effectively played uh, and kind of intimidating with a really kind of dark sense of humor. So, so, so far so good. Like it feels like the first power could turn into something good. There's a lot of stunts, of course, like a little more than you expect for a horror movie, but the, in the first, you know, part of the movie, they're pretty effective. I remember way back when the trailer for this movie came out. There's this one leap that the the villain does over Lou Diamond Phillips' head and crashes through a, a stained glass window, um, and it's a really cool visual. It just it looks really good. So we think we're in good shape. And there's a great scene where Lou Diamond Phillips, who's having trouble believing that he's up against an actual supernatural force, he thinks he might just be after like like a really Um, hardened physical guy or like someone on meth or whatever like he's trying to explain the physical feats to himself but there comes a moment where he can't ignore it where he's like chasing this guy on a roof that looks like it's like 20 stories high and the guy just jumps off of it lands on the ground and just runs away like nothing happened like he like he jumped three feet and Lou Diamond Phillips is completely puzzled and baffled. And then there's this really funny moment where, and I like how the movie and the camera, the director lingers on this, where we watch Lou Diamond Phillips make his way down the fire escape all the way down like 20 stories. It almost goes on too long. You like you want the camera to cut away? Like we get the point. He's coming down. But the fact that the villain was able to just jump off the roof and get down to the ground in two seconds. And poor Lou Diamond Phillips has to make his way down 20 flights of a fire escape, which takes, you know, 40 seconds of the movie. It's so insulting <laughs> to the character because he, he clearly still thinks he's he's got a chase in mind still, right? He wants to, like, catch up with this guy, but there's just no way you've lost, like, way too much time here. If the person you're chasing can take twenty-story shortcuts, you're just never gonna catch him. But I liked the annoyed look on Lou Diamond's face, Philip's face, when he finally got to the ground. So that's an example of a effective sequence, good stunts. But I think one of the most ridiculous and hilarious sequences ever put on film that I've ever seen. Is in this movie, it's just it's just kind of magnificent. It's definitely mystery, science, theater, or riff tracks level uh, humor, which is again not something I necessarily expect in a horror noir um, genre. But it, here it is, right? So there's this moment when they track the killer, or they're investigating a place called Hotel Balt Baltimore, typical film noir CD place like really run down, obviously in a unsafe, you know, area, um, completely decrepit building and um, just pure noir. And they go in there and they come across the killer in a hallway and Lou Devin pulls out his gun. The killer knocks the gun out of his hands. He's with uh, Tracy Griffith, uh, Tess at this point. Um, so they're both in the hallway and the, the killer... Jumps up in the air, grabs a ceiling fan out of the hallway ceiling, wrenches it out of the ceiling down, lands with it, faces the fan at them, and then, I don't know how, turns it on. (laughs) Like I looked a couple times to see if it was still connected electrically to anything and I couldn't tell. But even if it was, it doesn't matter because he chases it down the hallway with it. It's like roaring like it's got an engine, like an airplane turbine inside of it. It's spinning like it's 15 guillotine plates. It's just absolutely, incredibly bizarre and physically impossible. I, I was so stunned watching the scene again that i i was trying to like figure out the lore <laughs> like is because they they haven't shown this up to this point with this villain he came back from the dead he's capable of physical feats but is he also like a portable battery does he channel electricity is he using like um, like carry powers like telekinesis. I have no idea. I don't I was laughing too hard to figure it out. But then this if it was just that, I wouldn't even be talking about it. It's the next touch that brings this to home to glory is they run away from them they go into one of the hotel Baltimore rooms. And they slam the door shut and they're looking around in the room for something to barricade the door with. And the only thing they see is a portable bed on wheels with a guy in it, with a really old guy sleeping in it. And they grab the bed and they barricade the door against the killer with a bed, again, on wheels, that's what's supposed to be holding the door back. And a guy in the bed sleeping it. And without even thinking twice about it, without commenting, without shooting each other a look, they just make what seems to them the personal, per, perfectly rational decision to barricade a door against a supernatural powered serial killer with an innocent human being bed. And then they go, they like jet out the window, go onto the balcony. And then the killer bursts through the door, jumps over the guy in the bed. Thankfully, doesn't kill him because this poor guy did not deserve it. I don't know. I watched some comedies this week to like wind down from Halloween. And I did not see anything nearly as hilarious as the sequence of events in the first power. And that's kind of the thing with this movie, because there's a scene soon after that where one of the one of Lou Diamond Phillips Partners on the force is killed in a particularly gruesome way and left hanging from the underside of a bridge and it's still a kind of effective like it's still pretty rattling the acting is good of people trying to like just shocked from the the gore of it, like it's not that it's that gory to us in the movie, but it's clearly gory for them experiencing it and just trying to figure out how anyone even got the body up there. They seem really rattled and it's a really effective kind of scary scene. But then (laughs) the killer, the pentagram killer (laughs) possesses a bag lady. I think that's how she's credited in the movie. And she goes completely berserk. She starts acting like Daniel Stern in Home Alone. And again, it's just completely cartoonish and hilarious. So basically the cadence of this movie is scary, effective scene, action scene with stunts in it, something I think super unintentionally hilarious. R- rinse and repeat. <laughs> it's it's scene, 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 <laughs> but in that in that order. Repeated over and over again until the end of the even the catchphrase of the killer, who again is pretty good, pretty credible as a scary supernatural scary serial killer. His catchphrase is "See you around, buddy boy," which <laughs> which is just never going to catch on. That's a terrible serial killer uh, catchphrase. So, but the ending where I'm not going to spoil, but like there's a duel. It involves like a nun, um, a rescue. Um, more possessed body jumping. It's it's a, 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 a vat of acid. Uh, it's in the sewers, which again, sewers are very film noir. It's all pretty interesting and um, good enough, uh, except for when it's not. So I can see why this movie got forgotten. It's very strange. It's a very stitched together thing. It's definitely not like a great movie at all. But it is super fun to watch, and it's almost on so bad it's good territory in a lot of parts and still has some effective stuff in it. And as we've discovered, I'm just a sucker for that noir uh, feel. So that's the first power. Now, next is 1995's Lord of Illusions, um, written and directed by Clive Barker based on his own short story, the Last Illusion, which was published in 85 um, in his Books of Blood, uh, Volume 6. That story introduced Clive Barker's occult detective, Harry Moore who was in uh, several stories. He actually met Pinhead at one point. Uh, he was also in comic books. And Lord of Illusions is the character's first on-screen appearance uh, being portrayed by Scott Bakula. The movie also... Um, stars Kevin o- uh, O'Connor and Famke Jansen and, uh, Daniel Von Bargen as Nix. And I'm talking about the director's cut here, which I think is much better. I'm not like a director's cut person is always better. Like I, I like the theatrical cut of Exorcist three better than the director's cut, for example. But in this case, definitely director's cut <laughs> Lord of Illusions. Now, once again, this movie is not a masterpiece. It's just got a really unique feel It's Clive Barker's, like, MCU. It's like him doing world building, which I'm always in for, especially when you're mixing in the homage to, like, the detective story. It's very, like, Angel Heart-esque. Now, I'm not going in-depth on this movie. If you haven't seen it, it's Clive Barker. Um, It's not the greatest movie in the world, but um, medium Clive Barker is better, then great a lot of other things in horror. It's got magnificent sequences. There's a scene where a magician gets killed by descending swords that is amazing. It kind of harkens back to uh, the card, the Ten of Swords card from the tarot deck, which is pretty chilling visually. It's got the always welcome and great Vincent Schiavelli, uh, the subway ghost from Ghost or the organ grinder from Batman returns or a bunch of other things. He just has an amazing kind of little bit part. And then the character of Nick's who seems like he would be hard to take seriously when you first are introduced to him actually becomes pretty credible and intimidating. As um, I saw this called once somewhere as the villain that wants to die. <laughs> Like someone who's anti-life, basically, Um, his philosophy, his actions, um, just are just relentlessly uh, bleak, and it he does a good job of selling that. And then the the point where he kind of turns on his disciples is just an incredible scene. As is the scene when he gets put in the ground in in the first place and gets neutralized by a really elaborate. Um, Bondage esque, which is typical for Clive Barker mask. A lot of people get taken out of this movie by Scott Bakula. Um, I'm on. I'm neutral. I, I wasn't. I could see this being played better by a better actor, but um, it does. There's nothing about his performance that makes me feel like I gotta turn the movie off or uh, dislike it or turn away from it. He's just. It's just like meh to me. The real special thing here is Famke Jansen, which. I mean, just God or Pinhead bless, <laughs> uh, Hell Priest bless Clive Barker for giving uh, Famke the chance to play in a noir. If any actor ever was born to be in a noir film, it's Famke Jansen. And she is predictably fantastic in Lord of Illusions. So, Lord of Illusions is fun. Now, let's get to one of the greatest movies ever. Ever made. I didn't say horror movie. I didn't say noir. Just flat out one of the greatest movies of all time. And one of my absolute personal favorites 1947's Nightmare Alley, directed by Edmund Goulding, based on a novel by William Lindsay Gresham, uh, starring Tyrone Power, Colleen Gray, Joan Blondell, and Helen Walker and remade in I don't know 2020 or 2021 uh by Guillermo del Toro uh starring Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett and a bunch of I mean just that his remake had an amazing cast. Now, let's just get this out of the way. I am an enormous um Guillermo del Toro fan, but um I don't think his Nightmare Alley remake even came close to doing justice to the original. And I don't blame him for it. I think that, like me, he is in love with the original film. um, And I think he directed it like someone who was in love with it and maybe even a little intimidated by it. I think he just loved the carnival-esque setting. So he definitely wanted to film it on top of, obviously, being a fan of the movie. And then he probably thought to himself that, because the studio intervened and changed the original ending of the 47 Nightmare Alley, that with his remake, he would write that wrong and give the movie the original ending he thinks it deserved. And in a weird twist of fate, I think the studio was right to give it the quote-unquote happy ending rather than the ending that the remake has, which we'll get into. Now, you can only see a movie, a great movie like this for the first time once. And I'm going to spoil the hell out of it. So if you have not seen the movie, um, go watch it and come back to this episode later. uh, Because it's got such a twisty plot that I think I would just tire myself out trying to even do justice to the plot. (laughs) It would take like 10 minutes to sum it up. It's, It's full on noir with like twists and side plots and and not a lot of characters, but there's a lot going on. Um, But I'm just going to assume that you've seen it so I can just tell you what I love about it because there are so many special things going on with this movie. The movie is a miracle. It never should have gotten made. Tyrone Power was such a huge, like, matinee-level star of his time, kind of like the Tom Hanks of his age, but also just considered um, just like matinee idol, good looking. So like a mix between Tom Hanks and I don't know, Cary Grant or whatever. Um, And because the studios had almost full control over their stars in the 40s, um, he was just made to pump out, you know. Romantic movie melodrama after romantic thriller after melodrama, they had it down to a science. They were bringing the crowds in. The country was licking its wounds from the wo- World War II. There were a lot of uh, you know ghost stories and spiritual um, stories like which is kind of the heart of the plot of Nightmare Alley. Were getting really popular for very morbid reasons. Like a lot of people had just died. A lot of loved ones were missing their loved ones. Um and Tyrone Power was just giving the the studios were making him the medicine for um the times, not just fun and adventurous and feel good and happy, etc. And Tyrone Power wanted to break out of that and he used all of his clouts and all of his influence. To get this movie made and because he pushed so hard to get it made and it got approved by Daryl Zanuck and he was such a big star, it got like a list quality treatment in the making of it. It got a premier director in Edmund Goulding, who I think might be the most underappreciated major Hollywood director of all time, <laughs> at least as it stands now, like I'm sure in previous eras there was different answers to this question but as it stands now this guy he directed so many like big Hollywood masterpieces like Grand Hotel and uh, Razor's Edge and um, Dark Victory like he was making movies on an almost like Casablanca level and to get brought in to make a movie as dirty and as dangerous as and is forbidden as nightmare and nightmare alley. I mean the book Nightmare Alley is con- was considered so bleak and um dark and um and savage that when the announcement was made that a major studio was turning it into a film the public protested. They got thousands of letters of protest saying the book was too filthy um and too uh, sarcastic and cutting to, to, to be made like it was going to harm the public and the director Goulding um, is brought in like to try to translate this dark novel onto screen, even though he was mostly doing these very um, big Hollywood spectacular hits. But they picked the perfect person because he had obviously had a great eye, but he also had a very dark personal side. He was a very, very scandalous person in real life, which kind of came out after his death, but was sort of an open secret in a lot of circles. But think like the movie Babylon, if you saw it, Um, but probably worse mixed with like the lore of the owner of the Overlook Hotel, like that level bad. Like those were the accusations, at least. The screenwriter for Nightmare Alley was also super top level. So you had B-movie material being worked on by like mega Hollywood talents. So Jules Firthman was the screenwriter and he was working with all the stars of the time, like Marlena Dietrich. And I think the thought was that bring him in and he would draw the poison out of the book. But what he didn't do that. <laughs> what he did with his uh, screenplay was... He softened a couple of the edges of the things that just were never going to fly in the 40s, but he hid most of it just under the surface, so it was still there. It's like a body, a dead body under a sheet in the room. Like, just because the sheet's on it, when you're seeing, like, the the outline of the toes and the face and, like, a draft goes through the room and the sheet moves a little bit, like, you're not comfortable (laughs) Just because you're not seeing it doesn't mean that you're comfortable. And that's the feel that he gave for a lot of the subversive material in the original novel translated to screen. And Nightmare Alley is pretty much a cursed film. A lot of people who worked on it had very unlucky things happen in their life or very untimely ends, starting with the novelist himself, who um, was a pretty... um, dark person, uh, himself. I mean, he wrote Nightmare Alley, so that figures, but a fascinating one. Um, if you Google, uh, his name and then his business card, um, you'll have like a cold chuckle when you see it. Um, but William Lindsey Gresham is his name. And, and unfortunately, um, he, went downward after this. That book was his only success and Nightmare Alley, the movie flopped and was banned and made to disappear. Um, One, because the studio didn't believe in it. Even though a lot of people, even at the time recognized that it was Tyrone Power's best performance. They just thought the movie was too evil to, um, to, to put in front of um, innocent audiences eyes. So With the one chance of success gone, Gresham's life went downhill and he ended up um, unaliving himself in the very same hotel room where he wrote the novel Nightmare Alley. Tyrone Power himself, um, because his gambit failed, his hope for Nightmare Alley was that it would um, make people see him in a different light, that he he was a super talented actor, which he was and give him um, more interesting roles. But the backlash and failure just shoved him right back into the same kind of parts that he would do um, for quite a while until he escaped his own um, like uh, stereotype and made witness for the prosecution, which came uh, much later. Great Billy Wilder movie, um, but so this movie just didn't work out for anyone but us, or or at least me now, and Guillermo del Toro, and hopefully you. Um, because once you watch it, I hope you f- love it as much as I do, because it is an exquisite masterpiece. A lot of it plays as if uh, David Fincher directed the movie Freaks. Um, the setting is absolutely insane. And, and when they were making the movie, they built a- an absolutely real eight acre on the studio lot, eight acre carnival, functioning carnival with real sideshow performers. A matter of fact, the atmosphere around the shooting of the film was so interesting that actors from other sets, from other movies, kept showing up to the carnival. <laughs> they just they were maybe being forced there by the publicity department to try to make it seem like Nightmare Alley was kind of like a you know free willing, lighthearted movie, which um, is just malpractice to try to convince people that, or maybe they were just drawn in by natural curiosity of oh my god there's a functional carnival on our studio lot. But whatever the case may be, um, the movie they ended up making is just immortal. So it plays around a lot with the idea of conning people into thinking. So this, like in one way, the horror spiritual successor of this movie would be The Last Exorcism. Because you've got a con artist who starts to realize, who realizes too late that his con is taking him too far. He also tyron powers the con artist he also really enjoys conning people and has very little conscience about it but he's pretending he can speak to people's departed loved ones um and he's doing what all the people who do mentalism and stuff like that do to justify it when they know it's not real he's telling himself i'm bringing people comfort they're talking they think they're talking to their dead loved ones but it's giving them closure, it's making them feel like they're, that the people aren't gone forever, et cetera, et cetera, however you rationalize it, right? Um, but what's interesting is the movie itself doesn't seem to give up on the idea that there is authentic supernatural force. So the character of Xena, um, Joan Blondell, who does an amazing job in this character, uh, as far as I can tell, every tarot reading she does in the movie comes true. <laughs> Like, she's dead on the whole time. And there's also just this Final Destination-esque fog shadow hovering over the movie where you feel like no one's going to be able to escape all the bad they're doing to other people. It feels guided, like there's a bigger force at work. And to have that in a movie that's so skeptical about anything supernatural at all... Makes Nightmare Alley feel really jagged and kind of schizophrenic, like it doesn't even know what it is. And it's really dark because a lot of this movie's plot um, turns on the idea of mind reading, of being able to read other people's minds. The great Stanton, as Tyrone Power's character gets to be known, um, can tell what people are asking before they ask it. He can he can see what's in their pockets without them turning their pockets out. He can see what uh, women have in their purses without them opening their purses. All this, again, is part of the con, supposedly. But he can read people's minds. That's the reason he's giving for this being able to work. But in, in a romance, in a, in a romantic movie, what what's the cliche? Oh, we can finish each other's sentences um, we know each other so well. We're on the, we're on the same wavelength. We're so connected. Um, we can read each other's minds. And this movie mixes that romantic kind of mind reading with the dark con side of mind reading. And they bleed into each other. So you've got Stanton turning the the weapon of the mind reading on his wife. Um, And on the people who are romantically interested in him that he's trying to con out of the things he wants to get out of them and they're taking it as, oh, my God, I finally found my soulmate a person who knows what I'm thinking before I think it knows and how great a skill is that right with your significant other. If you know exactly the right thing to say when they're having a, a bad day or exactly the right kind of food to pick for them, if they don't have time to tell you what it is and you're just like picking something up and bringing home and they look at it and like, Oh, that's exactly what I was craving. That would be an amazing skill. But if the skill came because you're a practiced evil con artist, um, How dark is that interpretation of what romantic connection actually is? And then I don't know how this got past the censors of the time, but I always look out for standout things, as you all know, in movies, like, is there something a movie does that was better than any other movie ever to do it? Right? Like, the ending montage or however you want to call this sequence of events in God the Godfather when Michael's saying, I renounce Satan and it keeps cutting to the assassinations that he's busted loose while he's standing in the church uh, you know doing the baptism for his Godchild. The, like I can't think of another movie that did whatever the name for that is, <laughs> better than that. The like zoom on Roy Scheider in Jaws when he's on the beach, like, I can't think of a Zoom that looked like that in cinema that was as effective as that. Like, what is the best? What is the number one example of something? And Nightmare Alley has the most evil psychiatrist in all of of cinema. That's right. I said it. More evil than Hannibal Lecter. Her name is Lilith Ritter, and she's played by Helen Walker in an unbelievable performance. I... Think it's the role that Kate Blanchett took in the remake, but again, just that's not the same experience as watching the original Nightmare Alley. And the reason that I'm saying it, that she's more evil is two: she doesn't do as much damage, clearly, as Dr. Lecter. But one, and this is the thing I couldn't believe the censors didn't pick up on: she gets away with it. Like that was not allowed in American cinema in the mid '40s to have someone who's got a rotten soul. Like a super bad person to outmanipulate everyone else, g- get the money, get get the goods, um, up-level themselves, and and get away with no penalty. Especially in a movie that's based on like bad karma. The fact that she triumphs is remarkable and pays no price for her villainy. Like, as we know, Dr. Lecter does not get away with his crimes. At least for the most part, or not in the way he probably would have envisioned it. And number two, it's um, Lilith's pure enjoyment of evil. I don't remember a moment where, obviously, Animal Ector is enjoying himself a lot of the time, um, having great meals, at least for him. I don't recommend. Um, but the the point in Nightmare Alley where uh, Lilith triumphs over Tyrone Power. Um, her absolute unvarnished glee unwrapped pure joy in being evil. And she has this unforgettable line where she leans down really close to Tyrant Power, who seems completely broken and lost and did not see this coming. Got completely outmaneuvered and manipulated by someone who is, just as bad a con artist as he is, just way better at it than he ever will be. And she leans down really close to him and tells him, you must regard everything that happened as a nightmare. And that's this really eerie moment where he realizes that he's been staging all of these things for people, staging, bringing back their dead loved ones, even at one point convincing someone to dress up as someone's, um, dead, you know, uh, loved one, uh, to resemble them, to fool them into thinking their ghost has manifested in the room. And what he didn't see coming is that she Lilith turned his entire life into the staging. She's gonna tell, and no matter what he says to try to burn her down or get her in trouble or whatever, she's gonna be like, he's delusional. She'll have proof to back it up because she's a psychiatrist. She played it perfectly to make him seem like he was erratic and delusional. He she turned his actual life into a nightmare. Not literally, not In terms of a nightmare to live, but in terms of when he goes to someone else and says, this is what happened to me, they'll be like, oh, that wasn't real. That was just a bad dream you had. Just terrifying and dark and a pure villainous triumph, which is so rare in film. And then the ending, which is something you probably see coming if you think about it when you're watching it. But, oh, my God, it's so bad. It's so bad. And then there's Tyrone Power's immortal line. Um, and I'm trying not to spoil this part of it, but like his immortal line at the end when he says, Mr. I was made for this, which is just a botched scene in Guillermo del Toro's remake. Um, the line, they changed the, the wording of the line for no reason. The way the ending is. Well, so uh, the first ending is. Because remember, there's an additional ending that was added by the studio that we're going to talk about in a second. But where the book ends and where Del Toro's movie ends and where the original Nightmare Alley was supposed to end um, in this scene, it's just two characters. And in the original, this guy is sitting above Tyron Power looking down on him and he looks so small. The great Stanton, this guy who achieved all this financial success and fame. We see him shot like so tall and handsome and powerful for most of the movie. And then to see him just crushed down in a chair, like a bug um, with this guy and his shadow from this guy looming over him um, as he just gives up and surrenders to like the, the worst debasement you can imagine for a human being. And um, it's just not shot that way. Del Toro just has them both sitting in chairs and, He's got Bradley Cooper acting like he's Joaquin Phoenix's character in the Joker. I just don't understand it. It's just, it's so much more polished and sharp and mean and minimal in Tyrone Power's performance and the way the original film is shot. So that scene happens. And then there's a sequence that happens in a carnival. But here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm all for a good bleak ending. I prefer them actually um, for movies like this, especially, but um, I think that this ending works better than uh, I think the studio is right to add it, because what happens is there's this incredibly evil, creepy music that just starts in the two person scene I was talking about. And then we cut to the carnival and then we see Tyrone Power totally insane running around just loose like a madman. And that creepy music—it's like the evilest Wizard of Oz music. Um, with him running around the carnival is just terrifying. People are afraid to approach him. It's like a tiger got loose in the carnival, like like a man eater was out there. Like people are scared, and they're trying to figure out how to bring him. Uh, to safely like bring him down without hurting him. I like that. They say that in the movie that even though they're terrified, they feel also so bad for him that they want to neutralize him without hurting him. It would be easy to just like shoot him or whatever, but they're not going to do that. So they're still compassionate. And the carnival was the place of compassion during the whole movie. It's not the outside world. It's not the psychiatrist office or the bank or the, the society party. No, it's of course, It's the carnival where the real hardworking people were um, where the real emotions are for the movie. But even though there's a happy hug it out ending in the last 10 seconds, which isn't true to the movie, it does feel tacked on. If you ended it where del Toro ends it, you don't get this amazing carnival sequence with the incredibly creepy music and the fear and the menace of Tyrone power or that character just roaming about like in complete insane despair. So to, if I have to sacrifice 10 seconds of, ah, that really doesn't fit to get the three minutes of glory that, um, you wouldn't get if they had not hadn't made them add on the ending, then I'll take it because I love it. And then the last one I want to talk about is the epic and immortal Auto Preminger film, Laura, from 1944. Um, it stars Gene Tierney, Dane Andrews, Clifton Webb, and Vincent Price. There's something so weird and magical about this movie. I looked it up because I knew Roger Ebert would have reviewed it. And he gave it four stars, like his highest review. He, he put this movie on the same footing as Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> but if you read his review and didn't look at the rating. You would have thought he gave it two stars instead of four. And it's because the movie is so weird underneath. It seems normal on the surface, but it is a David Lynch film at its heart. And I think that just threw critics off. I think it's throwing them off still to this day after more than five decades or way more. Sorry, seven decades of this movie being around. Now, of all the movies I've talked about, this is the most noir And the least horror. So if you're looking for like horror, like then, I mean, if you're not, you got to be a noir fan to really like Laura. But let me try to explain why this is here, because I don't think I've ever seen a ghost handled in the way that this movie handles a quote unquote ghost. It's going to turn out, spoilers, to not be a ghost, but To all intents and purposes, it is a ghost through half of the movie. And it's so strange because Laura Hunt, the character played by Gene Turney gets murdered. We see the whole first half of the movie in flashbacks. It's basically like a big story being told by Clifton Webb, this older guy who has no business being with Laura Hunt at all, um, who kind of knows her story and was trying to like date her and dominate her um, in a really creepy way. And, is relating to a detective, kind of like the story of of her life and how she got to the point where she was uh, in her place, getting shotgun to the face, um, murdered, and the detective is like, this is the most Dale Cooper character, Dale Cooper from Twin Peaks character that isn't Dale Cooper I've ever seen. He's so weird, <laughs> like he's investigating a murder, but. Everywhere he goes, he talks to a suspect and then he, the suspect wants to f- go with him into the next suspect's house and he just lets them come. He's like collecting them, They're like trailing behind him, Like he's the Pied Piper of suspects, which is completely inappropriate. Every time like he's interrogating someone, it looks like he's not even listening. He looks bored. People ask him questions about the case and he seems like he can't be bothered, but you can tell he's figuring it out just in his own kind of like opposite way which is a very Dale Cooper vibe. Like, I'll never forget the scene in Twin Peaks when he was like, "Oh, trying to figure out who the murder suspects of Laura Palmer were by having people throw rocks at like bottles. <laughs> this is not approved forensic investigation investigative techniques. Um, and this guy is like almost equally bizarre. He's, he's figuring it out, but like in a way that you would never expect a detective to work. But this is where the dark magic of this movie really takes hold because we get to the middle point and all the ingredients of the film that are amazing, the the just impeccable dialogue, just so well written. Um, the dialogue that's coming from Clifton Webb's character is, is so smart and funny. Um, and the rest of the characters are not like they've got their own. They're all kind of really well fleshed out as different, real, believable people. But they talk like it's like an Aaron Sorkin, like it's a social network kind of thing. Um, So the dialogue's really crisp. The music is so haunting. And then there's this glorious portrait of Laura in her apartment that's like just presiding over anything. This creepy, um, old-timey portrait of this dead woman just like staring down on the proceedings as people as the underbelly of everything that's going on starts coming to the surface, where maybe you didn't murder her, but, like, you were definitely up to bad things. Like, a lot of the characters in the movie were lying, hiding things of their own, um, had their own dark purposes, and all this is coming to light while this portrait is just, like, glaring down on them. Well, not glaring, because Laura's too... It's impassive, right? Like, just sitting up there like a ghost. And then the detective, who's... Piecing together all of this, Dana Andrews character, he McPherson is the character's name. He falls in love with Laura, with the dead woman. It's like and there's this amazing moment of the movie where he's just looking for clues in her apartment precisely halfway through the film. And he's been so calm and unflappable the whole movie. No one can get to him, no matter how crazy his theme gets. He's just completely even keel. But he's like agitated and snapping his fingers and making fists and he's pouring himself scotch. Like he's just roaming around this apartment underneath Laura's portrait. And it, it could play like he's upset that he's not solving the case. But then Clifton Webb comes in, says, I saw the light was on in Laura's apartment. I came up to see what was going on. And they start talking. He goes, I heard you put in a bid for that portrait that you're going to buy it. And the detective is like, that's none of your business. And he goes, you're here a lot. Like, you come here a lot. He's like, I'm surprised you don't come here with flowers and candy for the portrait. And the detective's getting more and more agitated. And he remember, he hasn't shown in a single crack the entire time. So this is clearly getting to him. And the Clifton Webb's character says, Have you ever dreamt about Laura? Like being your wife, being at the policeman's ball, like laughing at your jokes? And the detective turns and roars at him. He's like, Shut up. And Clifton Webb just calmly says. Oh, I see you have drunk that, <laughs> right? So then he leaves and on his way out, he shoots this line to Dana Andrews where he says, be careful, detective. I don't know of anyone who's ever fallen in love with a corpse. And then he leaves and the detective stays and gets more and more agitated and more and more drunk and more tired. And then this absolutely crazy eerie music plays And he falls asleep in a chair underneath the portrait of Laura. And then there's a sound and the door opens and the light comes on. And Laura Hunt walks in because she's not dead. And the detective is stunned. Like the woman that he never thought he could have is there. He rubs his eyes like he can't believe it. And then he has to consider her as a murder suspect because the person who got killed feet from where they're standing when she walks in the door, the person who got killed in the doorway turns out to be a model who worked in Laura's company that looks a lot like her. And now Laura herself is a murder suspect. So he's got to investigate the person that he thought was dead, who he fell in love with, even though he thought she was a ghost. And now he has to consider her in the cold light of day as a murder suspect. And I just don't know that I've ever seen a movie Constructed this way where there's a person you think is dead that isn't dead that gets all the trappings and like the spooky ambiance of a ghost and the power and the presence of like affecting people's lives from beyond the grave who just kind of like walks back into the movie and then still has the power but not ghost like anymore. And then the detective tries to wrap it all up like Kenneth Branagh, like Herc- Hercule Perot style. That fails, <laughs> amazingly. You, in any other noir detective movie, that big end set piece with all the suspects in one room is where the spectacular shit would happen. I mean, the movie Clue is based on this trope. But uh, nope, Laura, that movie's too smart for this. It doesn't work. The killer's still on the loose. And then the incredibly sinister way it ends with the voice of the killer coming from one direction while the killer himself is creeping from another direction up on Laura and the race to save her. Oh my God. This movie is cold and hot. It's sinister and touching. It's it's there's nothing like the 1944 noir Laura. Okay, so that's our hybrid subgenre episode for this week. We'll be back to horror horror as we plunge through the remainder of this year. Um, Thank you for keeping the reviews and ratings coming. Even though there was an episode missed and I struggle through some things, your support is crucial and I cannot tell you how much I appreciate both the support and the patience and the kind messages. You all are the best community there is. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do wherever you're getting this podcast currently as you listen to it. And until next Wednesday, have a great Horror Week.